Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hey, what's the haps, y'all? What's the haps? I don't know. No, I asked that. Okay, you ask and I'm supposed to answer? That's how that works, yeah. Well, I don't know what's happening. We're recording. And we just did a live thing. Yes, we did. That was fun. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Crimes of the individual that we're covering this week and next is local to us, has directly affected people I know, and has meaning to me personally. Yep, same. I, I have uh, memories very direct to this. I'd been avoiding tackling this case for a number of reasons, and some of them are personal. I was appalled, though, after reading a few social media threads where some folks had no idea who this person was. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Wow, what, Canadians? Canadians. Oh, okay. It's a two-edged sword. Not only is he becoming forgotten as perhaps he should be, but mm -hmm. his victims are being lost to history as well to all but their still grieving family and friends. Those victims deserve to be remembered. Yeah, absolutely. The monster's depravity horrified Canadians a decade and a half before Paul Bernardo and 20 years prior to Robert Picton. Yep. Over a nine-month period from November 1980 until July of 1981, this man who called himself the Beast of B.C. abducted, raped, and murdered 11 boys and girls between the ages of 9 and 18. All of the victims are children. This will be a very difficult case for many, including Scott and myself. We'll do our best to leave out unnecessary detail that does not move the story forward. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I wanted to say thank you again to Rebecca McNall for helping with the research for these next two episodes. These crimes are horrendous, and we wish to warn our more sensitive listeners that this might not be the episode for you. This is a multi-part series. We felt it best to start with the first murders the community's terror, and subsequent investigation. This is The Beast of B.C. Part 1, The First Seven Murders. 
On the afternoon of November 17, 1980, 12-year-old dark-haired, blue-eyed tomboy Christine Weller was walking with a friend's bicycle along what was then called King George Highway. Christine was not overjoyed to be living in Surrey. She'd run away from home before, especially when her parents were drinking and fighting. Her parents were separated now. Christine, her dad, and grandmother were living in the low-rent Bonanza Motel along the highway temporarily. Christine's dad had promised her they'd move to an apartment soon. Christine had just walked with her dad to the Surrey Inn where he was going for a few drinks. He was still celebrating having turned 47 just a few days ago. Her dad Richard asked where she'd gotten her bike. She told him her friend Clive had loaned it to her. From the book Predator by Peter Worthington. Richard, Christine's dad, said, Hmm, be careful with that boy. At the Surrey Inn, Richard Weller kissed his daughter and said he'd try not to be late and to make sure that she rode straight home. Sure, Dad, Christine said, and began riding the bike in circles. It was close to six o'clock. Christine was making her way home when a man yelled at her from an open car window in the parking lot of the Surrey Animal Hospital just across the street from the Surrey Village Apartments. Hey, the man yelled. Do you know where the unemployment office is around here for hiring kids? Christine rode over to the man and after a brief conversation, she left Clive's bike leaning up against the animal hospital building and got into the front seat of the car. Christine was seen again at around 10 p.m. that evening by a security guard at the Surrey Village Apartments in the very same car. She looked as though she were drunk or drugged. The man who was driving, a resident of the apartment complex, said, It's okay, she's my niece. The guard bought the story and walked off. The man and the girl drove off. Two and two would not be put together until much later on. When she did not come home that night, Christine's grandmother and father assumed she was with friends. Christine's family reported her as a possible runaway to authorities on November 19th, two days later. There were reports of Christine being seen around Surrey, but nothing conclusive. Even though Clive's dad made a stink about the missing girl and his son's bike, the police said they were treating the case as a low priority. Christine had been reported as a runaway after all, and she'd done it before. But Christine Weller had vanished. Yeah, so much of that uh, hurts. You know, she's a year older than my oldest daughter. I am. So I can really picture her in that situation and uh, the poor girl's circumstances, the family situation, everything is just is sad. On Christmas Day in 1980, it was sunny and warm in the Lower Mainland. People were out for walks in their shirt sleeves, no jackets. One man taking advantage of the beautiful day was a, a guy named Bill Andrew. He'd decided to take a walk along the Fraser River, off River Road, near the Westminster Highway, both leading to Richmond. Mm, it's a nice area. While making his way to the river, Mr. Andrew caught sight of something strange in the leafless blackberry bushes. <sighs> his first thought, a well-known true crime cliche, was that he was looking at a mannequin. But the realization that he'd found a body quickly replaced the first thought. Okay, yeah, so... Uh... Right off the bat for me, um, I know that area very well. I didn't know that was one of the, the location of the 
first body or any of the bodies, yeah. victims. And I used to drive there daily taking my dad to work. So it's a very uneasy feeling to know that like every day in that uh, area. I, I'm driving past probably where the body was. That's, yeah, it's uneasy. Andrew ran back to his car, drove to Westminster Highway and flagged down the first cop he saw, taking a back to his grim discovery. Christine Weller had been found. <sighs> she was nude. She'd been drugged, at least with alcohol, sexually assaulted, strangled and stabbed. <sighs> she was missing a ring from one of her fingers and a chain with a crucifix that had hung around her neck. It was determined that she may have been there since the day she disappeared or very soon after. <sighs> the press announced that Christine had been found. Police were asking for help to find Clive's red 10-speed bike and gave Christine's description hoping someone saw something. Nobody had. The bike was found, though, next Saturday in the brush behind the Surrey Animal Hospital. The principal of Christine's school later said, although she had problems as many 12-year-olds do, Christine was never disruptive at school. She was a good kid. Yeah, I'm sure she was. Ugh. At Christine's memorial at the Berquitlam Mortuary, the reverend officiating said that God's wrath was waiting for this killer. Yeah, well, sadly it didn't come soon enough. Police were pretty much stumped early on, and they tried to connect it to other child slayings that had taken place previously. They had no idea of the hell about to be unleashed. Yeah, and just a disgusting piece of shit. One man who lived right across the street from the Surrey Animal Hospital where Clive's bike was found became obsessed with Christine's case and talked about his theories any chance he got. Hmm. His friends thought he was a crazy he his friends thought he was crazy and a braggart. His wife told him often to shut up and stop talking about it. But he kept on. Even though he was well known to police, they didn't talk to him about Christine initially. Perhaps if they had, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about him. On April 16, 1981, 13-year-old, 100-pound, 5-foot-1-inch Colleen Marion Dagno was out enjoying the warm spring day with her skateboard. Colleen had been staying with her grandmother in Surrey as her parents were breaking up. She'd spent the night at a friend's place in Delta, two bus rides away. Colleen said she would be home at 4 o'clock that afternoon. She left her pal's place and was waiting at a bus stop in North Delta when a car pulled up asking her a question. Do you know where the employment office is? I'm looking to hire kids at $10 an hour to wash windows. Colleen got into the car and it drove off. Colleen was assumed to be a runaway and was, again, a low-priority case for the police in the region who were overwhelmed with 300 missing persons cases a month. Her family hoped for the best but knew something was wrong. This was not in Colleen's character. Colleen, a smart and conscientious girl who always did her homework, was never seen alive again. April 21st, 1981. 16-year-old Darren Todd Johnsrud was on Easter break. He'd come out from Saskatchewan to visit his mum and her new husband in Coquitlam. Darren was 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed 90 pounds and had shaggy shoulder-length hair. He'd been in town only two days at this point. His plan was to get a feel for the place and come back permanently in the summer after finishing school back home in Regina. Darren was a bit rebellious and tended to hang with people his parents didn't like. On his way to the store to buy a pack of smokes, a car pulled up and Darren and the man began to chat. 
The man offered Darren a job at $10 an hour and a bottle of beer. Darren got into the car and it drove off, the two chatting away. Darren's mom and stepfather were worried to death when he hadn't shown up that night. He'd left at 11.30 in the morning. Where could Darren be? He didn't really know anyone in town as he'd only been there so briefly. Yeah, I'm struck by the age and innocence of all of these. And it's sad that seemingly the police immediately assume runaways. And I get that that's almost always the case. But um, we've seen it here specifically a number of times where there's a blindness to the connection of specific cases and they don't want to admit that there's actually a predator around. Well, one missing in Surrey, one missing in Delta. That's not very far. No, that's not very far. You would think there would be some. Oh, well, but like I this mentioned, just happened. Three hundred people go missing in the region but a when, month. I get that, but when you just found one of the missing kid, you found their body, and now another kid goes missing. I yeah. would hope that there would be a greater sense of urgency. Like, oh, this is okay, interesting. <sighs> it's easy, and it's easy to sit back after the fact and comment on it. Yeah. I'm sure in, in at that time, it's the emotion speaking, and it's frustrating when you see and hear these things. Yep. On May 2nd, 1981, near the small community of DeRoche, about 16 kilometers east of Mission, two men were out running their dogs in the forest. One of the dogs became upset and frozen place just down the trail near the river. Yeesh. On investigation, the men found a naked, clearly deceased young boy slumped over a stump. <sighs> Jesus Christ. After a few days of some confusion between police and Darren's family, a positive idea was made. It was, in fact, Darren Johnson who had been found. Oh, I don't like hearing slumped over a stump. He'd been beaten to death with oh. what appeared to be a hammer after being drugged and sexually assaulted. Due to the variance in age and gender, police had yet to make any connections between the two murders and Colleen Dagnall's disappearance. But one man knew that these three crimes were very much related. Mm hmm he had other things to take care of. He was set to marry the mother of his newborn son on May 15th, 1981. <sighs> Compartmentalization much? Yeah, right? Which is quite common with um, serial offenders. Yeah. On May 19th, 1981, that's right, four days after his wedding, the monster was cruising for his next victim. Sandra Lynn Wolfsteiner, 16, a pretty brunette with hazel eyes, was living with her sister in Langley. Not having a car, Sander hitchhiked when transit was inconvenient or non-existent. That day, Sander was off to visit her boyfriend in Surrey. She wanted to drop in on him at the body shop where he worked and take him out to lunch on nearby Fraser Highway. First, she stopped off to see his mom for a little while. After visiting with his mother, at around 11.30 a.m., she made her way to the highway to hitchhike to the body shop just up the road. The boyfriend's mother saw Sandra get into a silver-gray, two-door, medium-sized car with a man driving. Sandra, called Sandy by her friends, was late for lunch with her boyfriend, Keith. He was upset. He called her place that afternoon and was told she wasn't there. His mum told him that Sandy had left her place to come see him before noon. That she'd seen Sandy get into a car. <laughs> Keith was worried. He called police and was told he'd have to wait 48 hours to make a missing persons report. As the days passed, police suspected if something had happened to Sandy that Keith was involved. 
He agreed to and passed a polygraph test easily. Sandy was later placed on a missing persons list. Yeah, I'm sure not only the polygraph uh, was supporting that he had nothing to do with it, but he has a pretty strong alibi. He's at work, you know, and so, oh, man. Again, it's so easy to sit back and criticize uh, the police and and everybody, Uh, but, yeah, it's just, just emotional. On the morning of June 21st, 1981, 13-year-old Ada Anita Court had just finished up a babysitting gig in an apartment rented by her brother and sister-in-law. Ada loved the kids, and the kids loved her back. Some even called the kids Ada's babies. Ada was going to take a bus back home to Burnaby, where she planned to visit her boyfriend. She vanished on the way to the bus. What no one realized at the time was that Ada had been picked up by the apartment caretaker's son in a black pickup truck, our monster. After he admonished Ada for getting into the car with a stranger, he plied the youngster with beer and the promise of more work as they drove. Oh, well, he's got a pretty clear M.O., how he goes about... uh, A hitchhiker is much different. You don't really have to have a... That was more of an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you can definitely... He's got an M.O. He's got a, a, a rhythm to how he does it. At around 8 p.m. that same night, a white rock band we'll call Jim was out for a drive near Weaver Lake in the Agassiz region, a popular park and picnic area. Yeah, all but quite far from here. As Jim rounded a corner, he saw a man beside a black pickup truck. The man was bent over a girl in a multicolored sweater. She wasn't moving. Mm. Jim thought the man and the girl needed help, so he got out of his car and asked if he could be of any assistance. The man, with the girl at his feet, simply stared at Jim, not responding to any of his questions. Mm, yeah, that's suspicious. That's creepy. Yeah, everything about that is suspicious and creepy. Jim was scared and hopped back into his car yeah. thinking something was wrong, and he took off. Yeah, good call. The man got into the pickup truck and briefly gave chase. Oh, Jesus. But Jim, who knew the logging roads, managed to lose his pursuer after a few minutes. Holy shit. Jim was terrified. Jim was terrified, but he did not realize what he'd seen until months later when the news broke on TV. Hmm. Jim did not report his encounter to police until it was all over. Oh, wow. Who knows what might have happened had he talked to the cops right away. Perhaps the next month, July of 1981, would not have been so bloody, as our perpetrator would go on to kill six more children in the span of only 30 days. I mean, my initial reaction to Jim is, what the hell, man? You should have, like, got the plate and you should have done... But I can look now, like, that poor guy is probably fraught with guilt. Oh, for sure. I would be. Like, absolutely. And so I I actually have a lot of empathy for that guy. You you can't prepare Hmm. uh, for an experience like that. There are three things that you do. It's fight, flight, flight, or freeze. And I have done all three of those at various times in in my life. And freeze is probably the most embarrassing one. Yeah, yeah. It's the one that affects your pride the most. And and it's happened for me. Like when I saw my monster, I just froze. I didn't call police. I didn't do anything. Like I could have called the cops, went into the school, got the license plate. But in in moments of panic, uh, we're not really rational. It's easy to sit on on the sidelines and say, well, here's what I would have done, and here's bullshit. 
Yeah. Until you're in these situations. So uh, poor Jim and, and uh, what he probably, he probably beat himself up for quite a long time, if not currently, but that's just, yeah, that's a shitty situation for him. A terrible situation yeah. to be put in. And then you realize, oh, holy crap, what was going on? Oh yeah. Oh my God. Oh, oh, absolutely. Immense guilt, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. And feeling like a chicken. So much like that would be a traumatic event. Uh, it's specifically after or, or more so after everything uh, comes out because yeah, you're thinking like, shit, if I had just gone, if I had taken the plate, if I had done this, what could, but you, it's not the dude's fault. You can't, you can't, you can't be ready for something like that. No. And with that, we'll take a bit of a break. Detectives began looking into the disappearance of Ada Court. Our predator's connection to the property and previous criminal history, specifically that of sexual assault, caught their eye. They began to look at him as a suspect, but very cursively. Mm. This man's residence, places he frequented, and the places that these youngsters disappeared from seemed to be connected. Yeah. As geographic profile was in its infancy, connections were not as obvious as they may have been had these crimes happened today. Oh, yeah. Profiling in general has really, um, from the early 80s, that was just kind of the inception, so... And we're talking about geographic profiling which specifically, was, which is Kim Rosmo yeah. from the Vancouver Police Department is essentially the, the world expert yeah, on yeah. geographic profiling and helped to catch Robert Picton. Something I didn't give a lot of credence to early on when hearing about it, but uh, so much about it is that makes absolute sense. Typically, sharks tend to, to hunt where they're comfortable. Well, it's what, what, I, what we were talking about with Michael Donahue in the last episode, where my theory, I think the person's probably a local because of exactly stuff like that. Yeah. On July 2nd, 1981, he struck again. This time, he took his youngest victim. Simon Partington, 9, lived at 13141 96th Avenue in Cedar Hills neighborhood of Surrey. Angelic-looking Simon was blonde, blue-eyed, dressed in a blue t-shirt and blue jeans, and he was wearing blue suede shoes. He was slightly built at four foot two inches tall and only 80 pounds. After scarfing down a big bowl of cereal, he grabbed his Snoopy book. He tossed it into the basket of his bike and rode off to a friend's place just blocks away at 9555 128th Street. Simon never arrived at his friend's place. Within a few hours, Simon was reported missing. He had not done his paper route that afternoon. A massive search which grew to 200 volunteers searched Surrey looking for the boy. As Simon was only nine, it was tough to dismiss him as a runaway. Foul play was suspected very early on. He disappeared only blocks from where Christine Weller had vanished in November in the previous year. The police, the media, and the public began to wonder out loud if these cases could be connected. Could there be a serial killer stalking the children in the Lower Mainland? There was no sign of Simon. From an article I read on the now-defunct Crime Library website, one of Simon's school projects was a story he wrote called The Hungry Tiger and the Gullible Duck. The search was scaled down after six days. 
nine-year-old Simon had vanished. Yeah, so a lot of the geography around these cases I wasn't aware of. And like, so he lived at 131 and 96th. You know, not that long ago, like 20 years ago or so, I lived at uh, 128th and 96th. So like literally. Right there. Yeah, right there. Like, geez, wow. Yeah, it's our neighborhood that yeah. we're talking about here. Yeah, wow. Our killer, unmoved by the heat being turned up with the press coverage and the public interest in the disappearances, was on the hunt again. Only a day after Simon's disappearance, he approached two girls, 16-year-old Sandra Docker and her friend Rose Smythe, in an arcade at Lowheed Mall on North Road in Burnaby. Yeah, yeah, it was a popular mall for me. I used to go there all the time. He asked them if they wanted jobs cleaning carpets. The girls got into the silver Pinto that he was driving and they drove around the block to Cameron Street where a building had construction signs on it. The trio made a plan to connect the next Monday, July 6, 1981. They would clean the carpets in this building. Mm. They drank a beer with the man to celebrate in his car before he drove them back to the mall. On July 6, as agreed... The monster picked up the pair at Low Heat Ball. Holy shit. He said he wanted coffee and they drove to Nuffy's Donuts in nearby New West. Yeah, that, I know exactly where. He told the girls the construction crew was not ready for them yet. The man said he only had enough work for one of them and he chose Sandra. Rose was dropped off at Lectrofun, the arcade at the mall. Sandra was a little concerned about being alone with the strange man but decided to go along anyway. They made a stop in an apartment complex in Coquitlam where the man presented Sandra with a bottle of whiskey. Jeez. They drove downtown to a photo store and then back out to Surrey where the man exchanged the silver pinto for a green granada at a car lot. Oh, okay. As he drank, the man got grumpier. Sandra did not want any more booze, but he forced it on her angrily. She was becoming afraid of him, so she gave in and drank more. <sighs> she was feeling sick and quite drunk from the booze. Yeah. He drove to a secluded location near Guilford in Surrey and Park. He said, This is my newest job site, and quickly crawled into the back seat and began to sexually assault Sandra Docker. She fought and resisted the man who grew frustrated that he was unable to get what he wanted. From the book, Where Shadows Linger by W. Leslie Holmes and Bruce Northrup. You're fired, he snarled at her. He drove her back to Electrofun, the arcade, and ordered, Get out. Hmm. After exiting the Granada, Docker flagged down an approaching RCMP vehicle. The driver of that green car just tried to rape me, she told Constable Smith. Docker sat in the police vehicle while Smith broadcast, Burnaby All Cars, Green Ford Granada, BC License, JBH 616, departing Lowheed Mall. Proceeding east on Cameron, one male occupant, Caucasian, 40 years, Brown hair, wanted for sexual assault. It just happened. Oh, wow. Police gave chase and picked up the man. Holy shit. As he was known to do, he talked and talked endlessly in the interrogation room, but never about what had happened unless to deny it and emphatically or say the girl was into it at first. He reminded police that he'd helped them get a child rapist convicted as he'd been a jailhouse snitch for them in the past. He felt they owed him. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. As Sandra Docker's credibility was being questioned, there were no other witnesses, and she had been very drunk at the time of the alleged attack, the Crown didn't feel comfortable charging our monster with the sexual assault at the time. 
but charges could be brought at any time later. More investigation was needed. Our monster was charged with drunk driving and released on a promise to appear. Oh, God. Uh, again, um, frustration, knowing what slipped through the fingers, but not a fault of anybody. It, it's just how well of a manipulator uh, this individual is. Well, even though they had to let him go, both Darren Johnsrud and Ada Court had disappeared very close to where this guy's folks lived and mm. where he now had an apartment in mm -hmm. Coquitlam. Sandra Docker had been picked up very near the others as well. So they began to suspect that this guy was responsible for at least those two, but it could take time and work to prove. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine lots of trying to gather evidence, trying to uh, just follow the guy, see where he ends up going, see what he does, uh, dig on, get more info on him. Well, they were digging for more info, but they certainly weren't following him yet. No, really? Eh? No. Hmm. On July 9, 1981, just a day after getting away with attempted rape, our shark was out cruising again. This time, he had an 18-year-old male in the car with him. He did this often. It was easier to pick up young people this way. The young passenger's name was Randy Ludlow. He would later give his account of the movements of the predator that night, as well as the final hours of our monster's seventh murder victim, Judy Cosma. 14, a part-time McDonald's cashier. Ludlow said between 11 and noon on July 9th, he and our monster were driving toward downtown New West. The predator spotted a girl leaving the phone booth on Columbia Street in front of Royal Columbian Hospital. He obviously knew her because he waved to her. She smiled and seemed to be happy to see him. He pulled over. She came across the street and talked with him. Judy was on her way to a job interview at, in a Wendy's in Richmond. Her current gig was not enough for her. She was offered a lift, which she accepted and got into the car. They drank beer in the car on the way to Richmond, and they got there hours before Judy's job interview, so they stopped at Richmond Inn liquor store to buy more booze. Randy was tasked with getting the booze. Our creep gave Randy a fistful of cash meant to impress Judy and Randy went inside. When Randy came back out with the drinks, Judy was in the front passenger seat and the two were chatting. The shark was offering Judy a job cleaning carpets for him. She didn't need a job at Wendy's or the one at Mickey D's anymore. Wendy said she had to think about it. Killing time, they kept driving around. The man and Randy kept feeding Judy booze. Judy was concerned she was going to be drunk. She wanted to go to her job interview. The shark gave Judy pills, saying, These will keep you from getting drunk. But I told you, you don't need that job anymore. Judy was still not convinced. They made their way back to Coquitlam, where the shark had his apartment. As he went inside for a moment, Judy, now drunk and stoned on the pills, confided to Ludlow that she was worried she'd miss her job interview in Richmond. The predator dropped Ludlow off at the Lowheat Mall and drove away with Judy. He later told Ludlow that he'd dropped Judy off at the Wendy's in Richmond. She was never seen again. The next day, our creep took his wife and young son to Los Angeles to the Knott's Berry Farm theme park until July 21, 1981. 
Oh, you could just see how brazen he's getting. Like it was, everything at the beginning was still quite brazen, but he's just getting more and more. He just feels like he, he's invincible. Yeah, like he'll never be caught. And then he takes his wife and his newborn son to Knott's Berry Farm yeah. the day after. Yeah. Yeah, like clearly you, you just murdered somebody and uh, yeah, whatever, I'm going to go take the family out. We're going to go have a great time in uh, in L.A. Like, But again, that's that compartmentalizing that yep. these guys are great at. On July 15, 1981, the police met in Burnaby to discuss the case of the missing Lower Mainland children. From where shadows linger, the meeting proceeded with about 24 police investigators present. Vancouver Police, New Westminster Police, RCMP members from Burnaby, Surrey, Coquitlam, Richmond, Squamish, and Vancouver Headquarters, Serious Crime Section were in attendance. Here's some audio from the day of that meeting, exclusively from BCTV. Nine-year-old Simon Partington went missing from his 96th Avenue home in Surrey July 2nd. His small bike was found later, but there was no trace of the youngster. Simon's parents have offered a $5,000 reward for any information leading to his whereabouts, and police and neighbors scoured the community for any clues. But the investigation has hit a dead end. In Burnaby, police are shaking their heads about the disappearance of 13-year-old Ada Court. There hasn't been a trace of the young lady since June 21st when she left this apartment building at 550 Cottonwood in Coquitlam. She had just finished babysitting for her sister-in-law and may have jumped aboard a bus about 12.45 that afternoon. She had told her boyfriend two hours earlier that she would meet him. Ada Court never showed up, and police say there is nothing to indicate she would run away. She's had no history of this, no indication from family or friends, uh, nothing in her background uh, to indicate uh, this type of behavior. It's, uh, it's certainly different. No indication or rationale as to why she would leave, nothing from friends or families to indicate any troubles. It's just exactly that, uh, up and left, uh, just disappeared. Strangely enough, just a block away from where Ada Court disappeared in Coquitlam, at the corner of Smith near Clark Road, another youngster disappeared exactly two months earlier. He had left his mother's home shortly before noon to go for a package of cigarettes. 16-year-old Daryl Todd Johnstrad never returned. A week and a half later, his beaten body was found 10 miles west of Mission. This investigation, like the others, has also hit a dead end, and police are asking the public for assistance. Police are frustrated by the lack of clues, so investigators from all Lower Mainland departments from Squamish to Mission got together today to share their knowledge and experience and see if they can crack the Partington case and that of 13-year-old Ada Court. There hasn't been a sign of Ada since June 21st, after she finished babysitting at a relative's home on Cottonwood in Coquitlam. Still, police say there's no indication the cases are related. This is more of a brainstorming session to see what you can come up with. That's correct. What we're doing is uh, just sitting down and, uh, and, like I say, comparing notes, and, uh, and hopefully we'll come up with something. They were there to coordinate their findings with other departments. What the police didn't tell the reporters that day was that one man had jumped to the top of the RCMP's suspect list. I would imagine you don't, you don't let that out for sure. Right. They wanted to get a feeling of this man as a viable suspect, and determine whether he was potentially their man or if they could rule him out. Mm. This man's name? Clifford Robert Olson Jr., formerly of Surrey, B.C., and now living in Coquitlam. Olson was born on January 1st, 1940. 
He stood five foot seven inches tall, weighed 175 pounds, had brown hair and brown eyes. He was a career criminal who'd spent only four of his adult years outside of prison. Yeah, uh, for those who are older, such as us, you couldn't grow up here and not have that name haunt you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was a name that always gave you chills. Nobody but the police knew it, though, at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the police officers who dealt with him over the years felt that there was something not quite right with Clifford. He seemed empty. Hmm, interesting uh, way to categorize him. He'd been looked at for the Christine Weller murder, although very cursively. He lived right across the street from the scene of the abduction at the time. He was the guy who couldn't stop talking about it. The one whose wife had to tell him to shut up. However, Richmond RCMP had ignored him mainly because they thought that they had better suspects out there. Mm -hmm. Squamish RCMP mentioned that Olson had raped a 16-year-old girl in their district in January of 1981, but the charges had been stayed. <sighs> wow. Surrey investigators brought up the reported rape charge uh, for his attack on Sandra Docker. Again, here's this pattern. Vancouver serious crime investigators on behalf of Mission and Agassiz identified Olson as a suspect in the Darren Johnsrud homicide, but were not able to say definitively he was their guy. Yep. They all agreed that these things together, Olson's recent history, including his access and proximity of the residences to crime scenes, was way too much to ignore. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, uh, the change in time and technology, because they could have easily tried to find some discarded DNA from him. and yeah, you know. it didn't exist at the Yeah, time. yeah. But just it's crazy how technology has changed. Burnaby RCMP would be tasked to keep an eye on Olson using their surveillance unit, Special O section. Mm. But where was he now? They couldn't seem to find their prime suspect. I, I don't know. One investigator pretending to be an insurance agent visited Clifford's folks who lived nearby his residence at Coquitlam. They told undercover officer that Clifford, his wife Joan, and young son Clifford III were in the U.S. vacationing. Can you imagine be saddled with that name? I have a funny feeling uh, Clifford also the third has I would suspect so, although, you know, that poor child. Yeah. You know. Yep. That must not have been a comfortable life. No. Growing up growing in the up shadow of, yeah. Cops would catch up with Clifford on his return to Canada, or so they thought. However, Clifford was not done. Two days after returning from his family vacation on July 23, 1981, Clifford Olson would continue his killing spree, murdering at an alarming rate. Over the next seven days, four more children would die at the hands of this monster. Yeah, you can just, like, you can just see how, how much things are escalating in his mind and in his life. Like, he's much more, again, brazen with everything, but also the expediency of his crimes are crazy. Well, this is where we'll call it quits for this week on Clifford Olson, and we'll pick it up next week with episode 58, The Beast of BC Part 2, Hell Week and Aftermath. Yeah, great uh, title. Before we get into our Patreon shout-outs, we want to ask you folks for some help. Help us. You, you guys just <laughs> help us. Wasabi? What's that, what's that mean? Oh, there was a, uh, that... Uh, <laughs> we need, we, uh, number one, we really need to lighten it up a bit after talking about Clifford Olson. Uh, I just 
we need to lighten this up just a little bit because holy yes. crap. Oh my goodness. So yeah, wasabi was a it was a viral video earlier this year, well I guess last year of just like some uh some kids, some little girls, probably like 3 and her mom. She's like mom's having wasabi and they're like wasabi and so the mom gives her a little like just a little lick of it oh, no. and the kid just is like staring at the camera and you could just see her face kind of like it's, tension it's, and she's like the strongest thing she's ever had in her mouth it's it's it just like this it's like 30 seconds of just silence and then you hear help me poor kid <laughs> it was hilarious though so yeah so yeah. we're asking you for help and help. what we want help with is after after part two of the Beast of BC, we want to do finally do our Canadian primer and Q and A episode. Yes, it's time that we take an episode and teach you folks maybe about some Canadian slang, answer some of your questions, and make a glossary of things that we talk about. I mean, some of the questions we get all the time is, "What is an Nanaimo bar? What's a toque?" Yep. Get that over and yep. over again. What's a toque? Why do we call our group on Facebook the Yumber Yard? Yep. Why do you pick on Scott so much? <laughs> because I enjoy it. Because he loves the attention. <laughs> they, they answered already. But what we would like to do is we would like to not only just take questions via email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com, but we have a phone number that you can call and we will get a voicemail from you that we can use in the show. We'd like to gather as many interesting voicemails as we possibly can. You can be funny. Yep, please, please. But please ask us a question that we potentially will be able to answer because, uh, and rel related to the show, please. <laughs> Don't I'm curious as to what questions you are expecting that aren't related to the show. Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I get. I know where you go, like politics and shit like that. Yeah, we're not interested. We're not going to talk about politics. Yeah. Well, I'd love to, but no, not on the show. You know, no, because that would be bad. Well, we could talk about like what? What's your favorite song? Yeah. Like, yeah. ask us that kind of stuff. What's your favorite color? Yeah. What's your favorite? That's really what it's about. Is you guys getting to know more about us? Us. I, I'll maybe not get into know more about you because it's not a conversation. But uh, yeah, we want you guys to, to to learn more about those questions that you have about uh, Mike and I. Like, uh, ask away. And the show. A and the show. Well, <laughs> the show is Mike and I. Well, yes. So you can call us at our phone number, which works because I'm getting voicemails there now. It's 1-604-595-2448. And if you forget that or you can't find it, go to darkpoutine.com slash contact and you will see it. That's darkpoutine.com slash contact. That's right. 1-604-595-2448. Leave us a voicemail. We're interested. And if it's something like the guys on True Crime all the time answer voicemails on their show, so we're open to that too. If you feel like calling and leaving a voicemail about... One of the shows that we've done, like, give your review. If it, if you're going to say we suck, we're probably not going to play it, just so you know. Or, or we might, but you might get uh, an earful. <laughs> yeah. Or we might cut up what you say and make it sound like you thought we were awesome. Oh, that's I love that, yeah. Because we're very good at that. Yeah, yeah. We could do that. Cutting and pasting. So 
give us a phone call because we do really want to hear from you. So it's our Q&A episode, and that one is going to take place on this episode releases on the 21st. The next one is the 28th, so it'll be February 4th. Yes, but we'll be recording on the 30th, correct? That is correct. Yeah, the uh, January 3rd. So get your questions in before the 30th. We would prefer the earlier the better. Yeah. Because then we can we can collate them all. So yep. So January thirtieth will be sure. the, the latest we, we want you to, to call and leave a message. January twenty ninth will be the latest that we want you to call and leave a message because if we're recording on the thirtieth, we won't have time to be listening to yeah. voicemails on yeah. the thirtieth. So it's January twenty ninth. Yep. But but have at it, I guess. Ask us questions. Yeah, we're curious what you want from us. Hey, if you want to mention uh why haven't you done particular episodes? We'll tell you. There may be some that we've we're never going to do because we're avoiding them due to um, well, publication bans. Publication bans. Us not wanting to be murdered. There's that. There, there's that. At, and we will answer all of those questions. Yeah, yeah. Is is your hair real, Scott? How can hair be that glorious? You can yeah, ask that. I'm pretty certain your hair is real. No, I, I know. It is, or else it wouldn't be. Balding, it's real. Like yes. I would, strong. I wouldn't buy a wig of like balding head. Like that, <laughs> this stuff like defeats the purpose. It's balding head wig, Scott. <laughs> so yeah, give us a call, leave us a voicemail, send us an email. But we'd prefer a voicemail because it's an audio show. It's fun to have that in. Have and uh, you will be on the show. Yeah, I, I I love it when our audience gets to be on the show. We've so done the the go shit in your hat episodes. You know, like. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. And someone sent me uh, a, a voicemail today over Facebook, and I think they were drunk when they sent it. Oh, my God. But I'm not going to call it out who it was, and I'm not going to be mean, because that would be mean. But uh, but I want to hear it after this. Yeah, I'll play it for you. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so let's get to our Patreon shout-outs for this week. And holy, holy crap, shit. there are a lot of good eggs this week. So we may not oh have time God. to make things up for the people who are not. Oh my God. I know. Wow. It's great. Like, thank you. Wow. Number one. Yeah. Holy smokes. So first up is Jeanette Kielbasa. So Kielbasa, is that, is that like, it's, I don't know if it's spelled the same way, but is that Wiener? Yeah, no, she, uh, she is the heiress to the Kibasa, uh throne. Oh, like the, the hot dog. Yep, yep, she, yep, she's a, the lineage is, is strong there. I hear if you bathe in hot dog water, it makes you, uh, makes your skin vibrant and pretty. My skin's already vibrant and pretty. There you go. Uh, Shauna Dexter, one of our Yumber Yarders from Cumberland, Ontario. Hey, Shauna. Uh, Karen Siefker, one of our longest oh. listeners from Minnetrista, Minnesota. That's Thank you, of... Karen. Karen's been around. She's one of the, the uh, I believe she's one of the mods on the uh, Minds of Madness page. Yeah, she's been around for a while. Love her. She's awesome. And that's a lot of Min in where she lives. Minnetrista, Minnesota. Minna, 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 Minna. Mary Willick, also from Minnesota, but this one is from Minneapolis. Also still, some minis. Yeah, still a lot of men in it. Hey, hey Mary. <laughs> Rachel Bowman from Big Bear City, California. I actually would love to live in a place called Big Bear City. I was City. just going to say, like, I, that's a name I love. I like that, too. Yeah. I think I'd even live Canadian. in Little I'd even live in Little Bear. Little Bear? I'd live in Little Bear City. Sure. Average Bear City. 
Mary Watts from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Thank you, Mary. Hey, thanks, Mary. Michelle Wunatai from Toronto, Ontario. Hey, Michelle, thank you. Another Yumber Yarder, uh, uh, most of these people are, but uh, we've just had discussions with April Dawn Ray very uh, recently, and she's from North Saanich, BC. Yep, yep, I've had some chats with her as well. She is uh, totes a good egg and uh, a big-time horse lover. Horse lover? Horse lover. Well, how about them apples? Yeah, well, horses. horses well done, Mike. Well Look done. It is just as though that was meant to be. It really is. I didn't write it either. It just no, came out. No, it just that just happened. That was, was magic just happened. It was it's what we call a happy accident. You're welcome, April. Holly Pagnoson Connery from East Atlantic Beach, New York. Hey. Welcome, Holly, and thank you. And uh, I'm just going to stick with the first name, Holly. Yeah, you leave all the mistakes to me. That's what I do. Bonnie Lee, our friend from the podcast Writing About Crime in Winnipeg. Thanks, Bonnie. She was uh, joined us for our live chat there. Yeah, earlier. yeah. She, she's been on the Yumbriar for quite a while as well. Also a very good egg. Great egg. Writing About Crime is her podcast. Yes. Just so you know. Writing About Crime. Devin Holdsworth from Vancouver, B.C. Vancouver. What, what Devin? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Jennifer Anglace from Parts Unknown, I guess. So yep. yep. She, uh, but literally, it's a, the city's called Parts Unknown. But that's the the uh, the true crime garage guys use that, Parts Unknown. So perhaps um, out in the Canadian wilds, in the wilds of Canada. I think so. I think so, Jennifer. Jennifer. And then uh, Casey Jane. Also, yep, from the wilds of of the outside the Umber Yard somewhere. Yeah, well, the the wilds of um, Bar Harbor, Maine. I was just gonna say that. Yeah, okay, yeah, well, it was exactly. Maine last week. Well, it's a popular place, man. Oh, yeah, it's not our fault. Angela Shiplaw from Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Oh, hi, Angela. David Dunham from Medicine Hat, Alberta. Wow, David, that's. Uh, I'm glad that. Your hat has medicine and not shit you in it. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> now, I think that medicine hat is named, was named by indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. I think. I don't know for sure because I haven't looked it up. But I always, I yeah, drove but, through medicine hat. So have I, yeah. When I was coming back from Nova Scotia, I drove yeah. through Medicine Hat, and I, th I think it was there that I stopped for breakfast, and I do believe that's where my... My credit card was compromised <laughs> in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Uh, so I think it was at the gas station because one of the th pumps wouldn't work, you know, and then yep, I drove around to yep. the next pump, it worked, and and then two days later, my card was not working. Yep, yep, yeah. But I, if you had, like, city naming powers, it, you probably, it would be go shit in your hat, BC. Sure. But I like Medicine Hat. Sure. Trevor, Trevor Linden. Linden. Trevor yeah. Linden's from yeah. Medicine Hat. If you don't know who he is. Google him. He's a god. Brett Swinson is from Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Brett. Nicole Hansen. She's from Sedona, Arizona, and there's lots of UFO sightings in Sedona. One of the hubs. We are actually going to do uh, a UFO episode or two coming from, up this year. From from a UFO. We're going to do it. Uh, yeah. Scott no. lives in a UFO. In my mind, yeah. Kenzie Duzik from Edmonton, Alberta. Hey, Kenzie. Rebecca Ripley from Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, Rebecca. Sarah Johnson from elsewhere. El elsewhere, uh, Dakota. And I think she perhaps might be 
an embalmer by trade. No, not even might be. She is. Oh, you I, know I've this not, for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I grew up with her. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, we've known each other mm, 44 of my 45 years. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, she's good people. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Yes, Sarah. Kyle Kruger from Irwin, Pennsylvania. Just the dopest name. And Kareen Connolly, also from Irwin, Pennsylvania. I wonder, mm. and, they, and they both pledged around the same time. I mm. wonder if they were in the same room at the same time, both mm. pledging. Mm. I sense well, a conspiracy. If you're not, if you don't know each other, get to know Kyle, each other. Kyle, meet Kareen. Yeah. Kareen, meet Kyle. Yeah. You're both from Irwin, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Look at this. We are even love doctors. Well, I always have been. <laughs> How about them apples? Horses eat love apples. <sighs> Gina Avignoni from Henderson, Nevada, also known for its UFO yeah, yeah. sightings. And Nevada's uh, quite the hotbed of UFOs. Uh, Yvonne Byrne. Oh, hi, Yvonne. I don't know where she's from. She's from Byrne, Alberta. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, heard that she, it's named after her. Good. Yep. Marshall Phillips from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Marshall. Uh, tobacco Farms in Raleigh, I believe. Sure. Jasmine Fisher. Mm-hmm. Unknown. Yep. Yeah, no, I know. Where is she from? Uh, well, she's actually married to Fisher Stevens, but it's weird because like she took on his first name, not his last name. Who is Fisher Stevens? He's an actor. Uh, you might remember movies such as Short Circuit. Is he the guy who pretends to have the bad East Indian accent? Yes, he is. But he was also in Lost for a bit. Uh, and yeah, 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 yeah. But anyways, that's uh, that's uh, she. She married him. Danielle Dole. I'm sure she sells pineapples. She does. Yep, Dole, and related to Bob. There you go. Yep. My name is Bob Dole. Yep. You gotta shake your hand with the pencil in it. Yep. Yep. Sherry Archibald. Yep. Yep. Not where she's from, but not bald. Lots of hair. Exactly. Lots thus, of hair. thus the conundrum of the name. Alexis Williamson. Yep. Yep, Alexis. Yep. He's on fire. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> yep, yep. So Maybe she's been put out though, so it's all good. That's good. Yeah. I'm worried. Yeah. I was worried that no, Alexis I, I would, didn't, be, I didn't mean would to, remain on fire. I didn't mean to give you the vapors, Mike. Thanks so much to our patron patrons. Uh, wow. Yes. Holy crap. Past and present for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Oh my God, do we ever. Uh, if you have not done so yet be one of the cool kids and sign up for <laughs> patreon.com slash dark poutine you can give us a dollar a month or or thousand dollars and we'll come do it at your house yep yeah that offer is still for those new listeners who haven't uh, heard the will you give us 50 g's and we'll fly out and do a show from your house preferably in front of a fireplace on a bearskin rug on a bearskin rug no we're not saying it could be not real bear. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It, if, it, if you're a PETA member, don't come after us. The bear died, you know, and, and willed his his skin to somebody. Yeah, or it can be, you know, fake fur, fake bear, whatever. Fake fun fur. Whatever. Hell, just make it a carpet. I don't care. There you go. For a one-time support, uh, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at darkproteinpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we did get some more donut money this week. Katie Moore... Oh. Sent some more. <laughs> I see what you did there. I guess with a name like Moore, even though not spelled the same. Yeah. No, well done, Mike. Thank you, well Katie. Done. Comedy. Yeah, thank you so much, Katie. Allison Murphy also sent us an infusion. Oh, I don't know. I feel like we did she inject us with something? 
cash. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Allison. Thank you. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and for other cool stuff. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends about us. Especially fun, as you know, well over 2,000 people now what? Uh, is our active Facebook group, The Yumber Yard. Where and, you can yumber all the yards you want. And you will see us in there a lot. So if Scott's working, I'm in there. If I'm working, which <laughs> I never do, except on this podcast, then you'll see me there. The, I end up there when I'm distracted. So like 95% of the day. Yeah, yeah, like a crow. Yeah. Look at shiny. Yeah. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher like iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. I actually recommend playing us on all of those at the same time. That that would do wonders for our numbers, and I hope that's not what's happening. Well, I don't care. Do that. Uh, next week, we'll be back for the part two of uh, The Beast of B.C., uh, and yeah, yeah. So please remember, call us with your voicemail questions. We really, really, really would like that. Would like to hear from you. And the number again, 604-595-2448. With a one in front of it. With a one. Yeah. Yeah. That's it for this week. Don't forget to be a good egg and not... A bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Good night, children. Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.